you know, my house, I've got some chickens, I've got some garden, I kind of give it some attention now and then, and get some spinach and stuff like that. Um, but we don't really understand often a lot of these garden analogies as we ought to. And it's seemingly fitting that in this time that we have stepped out of the garden or the field, we seem to have forgotten this rule of sowing and reaping. It's easy to see what's happening in a garden by simply looking at the garden. You can tell the state of the garden. Me and Beth this morning, we were walking around Lawn and Maitland, beautiful suburb. If you guys ever get an opportunity, just go and walk around and see all the houses. We went to this open house, it was beautiful, went inside, got out, 1.4 million, this little cottage, three bedrooms, like 400 meters squared. I don't know how you can afford a place like that, but whatever. Uh, but you can see, they had these beautiful gardens full of juicy fruits, so many fruit trees around lawn, delicious veggies, there are interesting plants. Uh, Beck was stopping me every five minutes to tell me, look at this flower and look at this thing, and they were amazing, it's a beautiful place. And then you go to some different places, and their gardens are dreadful. They're full of thorns and thistles, and there are weeds that are like waist high. They're full of pests. Is there some cockroaches walking up the wall? Oh yeah, there are. <laughs> But in our day and age, we've come to despise the good garden and we've come to accept the dreadful garden as our new normal. That's what we should expect in people's lives. People are walking around with lives that are completely broken down, but it's normal. It's okay. We've normalized it. It's what we should expect. Never have we been more unsatisfied with life. Never have we struggled more with our mental health. Never have we been more confused about who we are and why we matter. And somehow we all live here, we look at each other and we say, this is normal. This is fine. Kind of like that dog in the house that's on fire and he says, this is fine. Never have we as a people fought so hard to defend our corrupt way of life. We wonder what has happened. It's quite easy to know what has happened. You read the book of Proverbs. And it has a simple answer for us. We were idle when we needed to work. We did evil things when we needed to do good. And we forgot God who designed our universe and in our arrogance tried to build our own. Proverbs 24 verse 30 to 31 says this. Solomon says he, he went past the field of the sluggard. He went past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. As you study Proverbs, you quickly come to learn that these passages that we're reading here, they're not really about vineyards. They're not really about fields. They're true. Oh yeah, if you don't pay any attention to your vineyard, guess what? It is not going to end up going well. But this rule applies for our whole lives. And Proverbs gives us this little crash course on the idea of sowing and reaping. And it's a lesson that must be learned by every Christian, and it's a lesson that must be obeyed by every Christian. And we will do untold damage, not just to ourselves, but to the generations that will come after us. In fact, many of the things we are reaping today are things sowed by our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers. So I've got three points that I want to share with you guys. Number one, and when I want to say garden, but what I mean is your life. I'm going to keep with the garden analogy, so you stick with me. But number one, our gardens are poisoned by self-deception. My second point, our gardens are poisoned by self-corruption. And number three, our gardens are renewed by Holy Spirit cleansing. 
let's get into it. Number one, our gardens are poisoned by self-deception. A couple of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 11.18, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Proverbs 22.8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. And I want to read Galatians 6, 7 to 8, because Paul is going to echo this sentiment too. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. One of the things I noticed in my studies as I was getting into this passage is the word deception showing up Constantly, in regards to this idea of sowing and reaping. Uh, Proverbs talks about it as well. Why? Because we as humans, we're masters of self-deception. You might think you get lied to a lot, but no one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. When we do wrong, we often receive delayed consequences. It's, you know, when you stub your toe, it hurts, you get an immediate response, you don't stub your toe next time. But sometimes we do wrong in our life, does it go badly? Does our life collapse? Does things go wrong straight away? No, not at all. We get some time, and then something happens. And that cause and effect relationship, you don't make the connection. And we're quick to deceive ourselves as to why these things are happening. No one abandons their backyard for months. Come out later, you've got waist-high grass, you've got bindies, you've got weeds, you've got ants, you've got pests. And they don't throw up their hands and say, how on earth did this happen? Well, I hope they wouldn't. Because they know why it happened. You neglected the state of your backyard. Weeds have grown up and destroyed it. Your garden is in ruins. But we come to our lives and our lives are in ruins. And we think, how on earth did this happen? When did this happen? We find our lives in chaos. Our mental health teetering on the edge. Our relationships and marriages struggling. Our children are walking away from the faith. Our finances are in disarray. And our spiritual health is virtually non-existent. And we wonder, what has happened? Who has done this to us? Why did God let this happen? But is that the truth? I mean, the truth is actually kind of hard to swallow. I did. This is because of me. We don't want to think that, do we? It's hard, it's difficult. It hurts to say, this is my fault. So we become experts in self-deception. And we sow wickedness and we find ourselves shocked at a harvest of corruption. Proverbs 11.18 says we earn deceptive wages. We're not the kind of people that can connect our behavior to the results that it produces. Uh, often we don't believe that our sinful behavior is actually that bad. We don't believe it's that destructive. Because if you did, why on earth are you still doing it? Why would you keep doing it? When we reap our wages and all our intellectual faculties, they shift into gear and we excuse, we obfuscate, if I can speak English. I mean, you see it all the time in churches. You'll see a person who habitually watches pornography. They'll read smut books. They'll binge watch lust-filled Netflix shows. And they're stunned when they have this lust problem. They can't go to the beach. They can't walk down the streets. They're just constantly thinking about sexual thoughts. Why do I have these intrusive thoughts? Well, maybe because you just sowed in your mind consistently lust-filled thoughts. A person will stress about every little thing in their life and then be shocked when they have anxiety and they start getting panic attacks. 
A person will wallow in self-pity. They'll throw so thoughts of misery and dejection, and they're surprised when they're depressed. A person will never love or respect their spouse and be shocked when their relationships break down. A person will associate closely with fleshly people. They will let their children surround themselves with worthless friends, and they'll be shocked when their love for God grows cold. This isn't rocket science. The Bible says it as it is. We don't like it here. We need to be on the lookout for this kind of deception. Paul brings it up a lot, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He says, do not be misled. That word deceived, do not be deceived. What? Bad company corrupts good character. Jeremiah says it clearly to us, 17 verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And we feel like we can get away with things. One of the sad realities is I used to, I would know a lot of evangelists. And they would get very, very upset that the church wasn't on board and they weren't going out sharing Jesus with people. And so they would leave church behind and they would be the people that would go share Jesus with them. And then over time, they would change. They would become different. And they believed different things. And all of a sudden, they were just like the world. In their effort to reach those people, they, were ended, they ended up getting reached by people that were trying to reach themselves. Our hearts, they're little factories of excuses. Factories of desires and passions that deceive us into thinking we are right. If we do this, we do that, we'll get the satisfaction, we'll get the fulfillment that we need. God says this, that will matter. I'm going to do this. But James 1.22, he brings this word, deception, up again. He says, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. See that word deceive? Do what it says. In other words, sow the word of God into your life. Because if you don't, don't expect to reap anything. Hearing it and believing it, and I use believe in uh, scare quotes there, it's not going to change anything. We have this erroneous belief that if we hear the word of God, we agree, we affirm cerebrally, this is truth, and then we walk out and we don't do it, somehow it's going to do some magic and some seed is going to germinate when the seed never sprung up because it fell on the path. Jesus tells a parable of two sons, and he says to the sons, go out into the field. One son says, yes, Father, I will go into the field, and then doesn't go. And a second son comes up to uh, says, I am not going to go into the field. He goes away, he thinks about it, he changes his mind and goes into the field. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, which son did the will of God? Uh, the will of the Father, sorry. Obviously, the second son, the first son, are the churches full of the first son. He says yes to God, but don't go. See, if it doesn't make its way to your fingertips and into your speech and to your conduct, do you really believe the Word of God? You cannot reap a harvest if you don't sow the Word of God in your life. And that's why James says, don't merely listen. You're going to deceive yourself. We're good at it. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. That little voice, even right now, that might be speaking to you saying, oh, it's fine, don't listen to him, you're going to be okay. Oh, it's really not that bad, he's overplaying it. Squash that thought, it's deceiving you. It's stopping you from doing what you know you need to be doing. If you find yourself saying during sermons, oh, I know that already. 
without even assessing whether or not you're actually doing what the person in the sermon is saying, you might be engaging in this kind of self-deception. We don't have all the time in the world to get our life in order. Sometimes we reap a huge harvest of corruption in this story. Even though we're Christians, we make a mess of everything, even though we know the Lord. Proverbs 10.5 He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Proverbs 20 verse 4 The sluggard does not plough in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Imagine for a second you were going to enter into a trade. Let's pick a really um, honourable trade, Brick Lane. Everyone likes to live. You go into Brick Lane and you want a master apprentice. No, not apprentice. You want a master tradesman. You want a guy who knows his stuff. You want to learn from this guy. One day you might open your own business and you might do well, but you, you're not going to learn how to do it well if you don't have a good master. And this guy who's been doing it 40 years. That's the guy you want. And you go up to him and you say, will you accept a new apprentice? And he says, mate, I have one spot in, you can come in. And you go in, you come alongside him and you start learning from him. 40 years this guy's been at it. And he doesn't know anything. What would you think? You're trying to learn from him and he knows nothing about bricklaying except the absolute basics. You're thinking, mate, for 40 years, what were you doing? For 40 years. You were this bricklayer running your own business and you know nothing about bricklaying. Of course, it's impossible. That wouldn't happen, right? And yet we find Christians who sit in church for 40 years and know nothing about the Bible. They know nothing about God. They don't have a spiritual life. Their family's in tatters. And you're wondering, what were you doing for 40 years? You should be able to look at a man advancing years who have been in church and you should be able to say to him, can I learn from you? Teach me something. Help me here in my life. I don't know what to do here. But how often do you come to that older man or the older woman? She doesn't know anything. They refuse to do the hard preparatory work in Proverbs here in the autumn. You've got to plough that field in the autumn after the harvest. You're too busy enjoying the harvest and you're not, in, you're not getting back to work. You know, these people are shocked when they reach their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. They've got no personal holiness, no knowledge of God. Their walls are broken in, the weeds are flourishing, the field's barren, and it's completely devoid of fruit. And the sad reality is these people are not rare in the church. They sit in the pews every week. They're mildly affected by the word of God. They're mildly impacted by the songs. They're sentimental when they eat the bread uh, and they drink the wine, but their lives are lukewarm at best and full of secret sin. And I'm seriously concerned for those people. I kind of, I, I really do fear for them. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he brings up this word deceived again. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And just to make it more impactful to us, he says, do not be deceived. Why is he saying it? Because it's so easy to be deceived. We think we're special. I'm in a different category to other people. It's going to turn out all right with me. The whole she'll be right attitude. But somehow we're going to get away with our wrongdoing. It's not true. Don't deceive yourself. 
Not only will you reap corruption and misery in this life, you will fail to inherit the kingdom of God if you are constantly in habitual, unrepentant sin. It's a sign of someone who doesn't know Jesus and they are a false professor. Ephesians 5, 5 to 6. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Here's that phrase again, that no one deceive you with empty words. For the goods of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Don't let anyone deceive you. You're going to deceive yourself, and other people are going to come along and say, oh, it's all right, man, don't stress about it, don't worry about it, don't get all up in arms about it. The church, your culture, your friendship circle, even your pastor may come and try to deceive you when you know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Before you shout out that what I'm talking about is legalism or works righteousness, firstly, it's in the Bible, so we've got to deal with it. But we've got to remember that Paul here is not describing a saved person. He's not describing a person transformed by the Holy Spirit. Who is he describing? He's describing a person who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's describing an unsaved person, an unregenerate person, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. These people cannot sow to the Spirit, as Paul says, because they don't have the Spirit. They're fleshly. They're unsaved. They're not inheriting the kingdom. The difference between a sower to the Spirit and a pew warmer, I would say, is the fight. The one who sows to the Spirit gets up in autumn and plows his field. The one who lives in the flesh, ah, I'm going to enjoy the harvest. It'll sort itself out. One fights for holiness, one hates their sin, and the other has come to make peace with their sin and try to get away with the bare minimum so people don't bother them. One of them will pull the roots up by uh, the, the weeds up by the roots, and the other will just mow the lawn. From a distance, it just looks like a green patch. It's fine. It's a good lawn until you come close to it and you realize it's been decentral. What field is your life? Now, I'm not saying if there's like weeds present in your field and you're in big trouble. I'm saying, have you come to peace with those weeds? Or are you pulling them out? Are you just mowing over them? Or are you like, I don't want that in my life. And I'm not going to come to peace with it. And I'm going to fight it until my last breath. That is a sign of someone who knows the Lord. It brings me to my second point. Our gardens are poisoned by self-corruption. We can see that in our Proverbs 1, 29-31. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsels and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. So before we're talking about the self-deceiving kind of sowing, where you feel like it's not, like, you know, you, you deceive yourself. This is the blatant rebellion. This is the, no, I don't like that. So I'm not going to do it. They reject God. They reject his ways. They rebel against his designs for the universe. And they do it knowing what God says. They know God says, don't do that. And they say, 
I want to do it anyway. Why? Why do they do it? It's not merely ignorance. It's not because they don't know. It's not deception. They haven't been lied to. They know. And they don't want to do it. They think they're better than God. They know better than God. They believe the fruit of their way is more tasty, more satisfying, more fulfilling. They know that what the way that they choose to live their life is superior to the way that God calls them to live their life. The interesting thing here is that they somewhat succeed. What do we see here? God promises you will indeed eat that fruit. You're going to get it. You're going to get that fruit. You're going to have your fill of your own devices. You're going to get drunk on it. You're going to fall in love with your corruption. And they're going to consume it in all its fullness. That's what God does. It's this idea of being given over to your sin. It comes up, for instance, in Romans 1.26. We read, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he goes on in the rest of Romans to describe a whole array of different sins. Uh, for instance, um, uh, me and Beck, when we started dating, uh, we were six months into our relationship when I proposed to her to get married. Now, I come from a non-Christian family, and that is just virtually unheard of. Six months? They'd met Beck once, my parents. And then the next time, I'm calling them saying, hey, I just proposed uh, to Beck. Now, to say that it took my dad off guard is an understatement. He was shocked. And he was trying to find a way for me to backtrack, get out of the engagement, and do a bunch of things that he thought were wise. He said, why don't you try living with her first? He knew I was a Christian. He knew that I wasn't engaging in premarital relations. And he said, why don't you just test it out for a bit so you know? Well, that's my dad's wisdom. He wants me to live a better life. He's trying to give me advice in his mind. That's going to make things better for me. And I know in my mind that if I do those things, I'm going to be disobeying God. I know that I will be a fornicator if I do that. And I will be living with her before I got married. Is my dad right? Will I have a better shot at marriage if I lived with her? Would I have a better shot at marriage if we engaged in you know, premarital relations? Well, there, it's a common cultural thing, isn't it? Everyone says that. Is it true? In fact, you are significantly more likely to divorce if you cohabit before marriage. Significantly more likely to divorce. On every metric that they could find, your marriage after cohabiting was going to be worse than if you didn't cohabit before marriage. That kind of sounds backwards, doesn't it? Why wouldn't it work better if you, you know, tried it out first before you went into it? Well, it's God's design. God made it all, didn't he? And he designed it all, and he knows how it works. And we think, in our pride and our arrogance, we can come along and we say, God, no, you're wrong. We know, we're not in those times, they're archaic, oh man, prehistoric. We know how to have healthy relationships. Do we? Do we actually know how to have healthy relationships? Go see a psychologist, and they're going to coach you on having a healthy relationship. How many people do we see out there that have absolutely unhealthy relationships that have completely collapsed. How many of us, even in the church with the Word of God in front of us, still have a really hard time with doing it? People have not got this worked out. And we look at God's Word and we think, oh, He hasn't got it worked out. Why don't you try living it? Why don't you start sowing different seeds in your garden? Why don't you start doing different things? I mean, it's easy to see out in the world. We can look at, you know, my dad, he's a non-Christian guy. We can look at that in Scott and be like, ah, oh, non-Christian being a non-Christian. What about you? 
very hard to see in your own life, isn't it? But I can guarantee that somewhere in your life, you know what God wants you to do, and you don't think it's better. You don't think your life's going to be better than you. You think he's wrong. You're not going to say it, because you're not going to go, oh, and say, you're wrong, God, because you know you're going to lose that battle. But in your heart of hearts, you know you think God is wrong. People who love their corruption are prone to love their misery. Sometimes they love their victim status, they love their pride. But it's a lot more subtle when it comes to Christians. And um, I decided as I was writing my sermon, I didn't know whether I was going to include this, but then I decided, no, we're going to have some hard words. So let's have some hard words together, guys. Have a look at Proverbs 16.28. It's an analogy when it comes to friendship of sowing and reaping. He says, a dishonest man spreads. Now that word in Hebrew, it's translated very literally. It is spread, but that's the kind of thing you do when you farm, right? You spread seed. And it means sow. A dishonest man sows strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. And so here we find these people, the dishonest man and the whisperer, sowing seed. What are they sowing? Strife and gossip. That's what the word whisperer means. In fact, the Greek word for gossip literally is whisper. The word so we see whispering is uh, gossip, and we, but we don't feel often that we have participated in it. But often we have. We get very good at talking about a person's shortcomings with others, and we justify it. We say we're just trying to help them. We're just trying to get together. We're going to talk about this thing. We're going to try to justify ourselves by doing it. We don't address the concerns we have about that person to the person, do we? We don't go up to them and say, hey, I just noticed this thing, and I really want to talk to you about it. Why? Well, it's confrontational. They might not like me. That's a bit awkward. So who am I going to talk to about it? Oh, someone else in the friendship group when they're not there. What happens when everyone is talking about everyone in the friendship group, but never to them to each other? They no longer trust each other. In a group that were once tight, close, they trusted each other with everything. They confided in each other. Now have no idea about the person they're talking to. Is it flattery? Are they just flattering me right now? And then they're waiting until I leave so that they can go tell their friend what I just said? I don't know if they're just waiting to go and do this. I mean, how is this fixed? We all do it, to some extent. You have to do the hard thing. You have to plow the field in autumn if you want to reap a close friendship. Proverbs tells us, 27 to 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And yet in the 21st century, we build our relationships on the complete opposite of this enemy. We used to work at an ice rink, and there were all these close friends. And every time a girl would update her profile picture on Facebook, filled with compliments down the bottom. And as I'm reading these compliments, I know that 80% of these women hate that girl's guts and talk about her all the time. Proverbs says, the kisses of an enemy must be profuse to you. Do not accept flattery. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Where are those friends who will plough the field in autumn? Who will tell you what you need to hear? Who will wound you 
but not as someone wielding a battle sword, but as a surgeon with a knife. If it can be worked on, you come alongside these people with humility and love, and you're faithful to them. And when you're faithful to the friends, you will reap a harvest of friendship. But when you speak behind their back, you will reap a harvest of distrust and strife and just complete toxicness. And this happens in our parenting too. Next controversial point I'm going to make from Proverbs. Christian parents often disregard what the Word of God says about parenting. They think they can produce better and more lasting fruit in their children than what the Word of God says. Firstly, you see it in parental laziness. Parents, they're not interested in whether or not their children have any godly influences, any Christian friends. They think they know better than God, or their kids are going to go out and be a missionary, and so they send them out to the world. But Proverbs 28, 7 says, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Look at that. A son's friend reflects poorly on the parent. Who the son hangs out with reflects poorly on the parents. Our parents, they sometimes in our age, especially the 21st century, they think physical discipline, it's just beyond the pale, unloving, unjust. Instead, they'll choose different parenting facts. God says in Proverbs 13 24, very confrontational what Proverbs says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline. Diligent, that word. Faithful, consistent. Because he loves his son. He's going to put the work in for his child. Proverbs 29 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. See that again, the result of your child brings shame to the parents. What is going on there? Well, firstly, love looks like discipline. Where a child left to themselves will reap a harvest of shame for their parents. In our culture, when uh, children go away, we rush to the parents and we comfort them and we say stuff like, we did all that we could. Basic Christian doctrine, right? We're sinful. We can't do all that we can. In no world can we possibly ever do all that we could. But praise God, there is forgiveness for us. When we drop the ball and when we sow seeds, even if we live with the consequences, God can still be merciful and He can still restore our broken down garments. It's proved true for me in my own experience. For most of my teenage years, I struggled, or in, in early 20s, I struggled with uh, depression. Quite bad. Significant, significantly bad uh, thoughts of suicide and things like that. It was a tough time in my life. And these periods would come upon me all the time, these prolonged, sometimes multiple months of feeling dejected, feeling miserable, feeling despondent. I was just so low energy. It was really hard to be motivated to do anything in my life. I mean, how does this happen? If you met me as a kid, you would think, what on earth happened to this kid? Because I was so happy and I had a luster for life and now I'm this miserable teenager 90% of the time. My parents didn't know what to do. I had no joy, no peace, no contentment. If I thought about it biblically, I would ask a very important question. What did I sow to reap a harvest of misery? Now, it's true that someone else could have sowed something in my life. Plenty of people sow in your life. But what did I sow? That's a good question. What did I sow? I didn't necessarily realize it at the time, but I felt like my thought life was my own. That if I said things to myself in my mind like, you're useless, you're worthless, You'll never amount to anything. No one really likes you. 
I'll be fine. I'm just saying it to myself. Somehow I thought it would motivate me to try a little harder. Right? What do you think that 10 years of sowing those thoughts into my mind did to you? What kind of harvest was that going to reap? Isaiah 8, 7 says, They sow the wind and they reap the world. Now, how did I get past 10 years of corruption? That's a long time to wallow in those kind of thoughts. That's a long time to do damage to your brain and corrupt yourself. What did I do? It's not sexy. It's not cool. Here's what I did. I repented. I asked for forgiveness. And I quit cold turkey. Literally. I just said, I am not thinking these thoughts anymore. I'm done. I don't want to think them. They're dishonoring to God. They're dishonoring to me. And they're destroying my life. I'm not thinking them anymore. I took every thought captive to Christ, and every time these lies entered into my head, I didn't dwell on it, I said no. And when I found myself dwelling on it for five minutes, I said no. And if I found myself dwelling on it for three days, I said no. Whenever I could, I said no to those thoughts. And did I transform my life overnight? No, I didn't transform my life overnight. Did my life change dramatically? No, not at all. I still felt miserable for weeks. But through all those weeks, I said, no, 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 no. Little by little, the garden of my mind changed. And the weeks of depression turned into days of depression, which turned into hours of depression. And every now and then, that familiar feeling comes rolling into my mind. And those thoughts come back. And I say, no. And guess what? That feeling goes now. In a matter of minutes. Praise God. It's so much more manageable in my life now. But it's not enough to simply cease sowing to the flesh. I started pulling up all those roots out of my mind that were just destroying me. That's not enough. You need to sow to the Spirit if you want to reap life. That's my third point. Our gardens are renewed by Holy Spirit with us. Proverbs 28.13 Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will attain mercy. And let's finish Galatians 6. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. those of us here who are Christians, we have turned from our sins, haven't we? We put our faith in Jesus. And the Bible tells us we are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit and we are empowered to walk a life of obedience. In Christ, we know that we are utterly secure, we are safe, we are transformed, we are redeemed, we are brought from death to life, we have a new life given to us by God. And for some of us, when we became a Christian, God just healed us of some corruption. Our garden was just filthy in this one area and God came along and he just tore it all down. And he planted a bunch of things in its place. And we said, thank you, Lord, for doing that. But all of us know he didn't heal us of everything, did he? There's still corruption there. There's still stuff there. He healed us of some of it. And the other, he said, go, my son, go, my daughter. There's much work still left to be done in this garden. We have a task of putting to death our sin and living a life of spirit-filled obedience. We don't walk in the flesh anymore. We used to do it. Yeah, we used to do it. That's not us. We're a new person. We live in a spirit-filled obedience now. We sow to the spirit and we are reaping life. 
Not as a way to earn our salvation or merit us extra favor with God, but out of this sense of gratitude and love for God who had just come through and restored our garden, which was destined for wrath. And our minds have been changed and we've received this new set of desires and affections and these new plants are growing up and we're just amazed that something good is growing here. And we cultivate it and we water it and we put stuff in there and fertilize it and we try to get the soil life going well so that these things that God sowed in our life grow into their fullness. We have to cement them with the practices of the fruits of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and grow in the Spirit and develop into the people that God has called us to be. And sometimes along the way, we got distracted and we stopped watering those fruits and we stopped keeping the soil life well. We didn't fertilize it. We didn't do all the things that we know we ought to do. And those things started withering and the flesh came back with fear. What does Paul call us to do? do what I did with my depression. Quit cold turkey. I know that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear the five-step plan. No, that's not how it works. We repent of our sin. We don't make a five-step plan to slowly repent of our sin. We're Christians. It's not what Christians do. Paul says, in due seasons we will reap if we do not give up. It takes time. Any of you guys who have ever planted a plant, you know you put that seed in the ground? You don't come out two hours later and you've got fruit. It takes time for that seed to germinate and grow and then uh, bud and then bear fruit. You will see significant growth and maturity if you persist. If you persist. For instance, if you lived in 20 years of sowing negative thoughts, yeah, you've reaped a lot of corruption, haven't you? Think about this. What would 20 years of sowing Christ-exalting thoughts do to a person? That's going to be some good fruit there. We talked about the negative, but we need to move on from feeling sorry for ourselves. We need to realize what kind of harvest we can reap if we change. Ask yourself questions like these if you need encouragement. You're finding it hard to read your Bible that day. And you say to yourself, what would, what kind of effect would decades of daily Bible reading have on you? Did you even make it before that? Put it in a spreadsheet, little Google sheets or whatever, and try to count? You wouldn't even be able to count. What kind of effect would decades of daily prayer and adoration for God have on a Christian? Imagine sowing that every day, adoring God, praying to God. Imagine the harvest you would be. What kind of effect would decades of habitual love and respect in a marriage have on a relationship? Habitual. Not when you feel like it, but every day you show love and respect. Could you even measure the changes that would happen? What kind of effect would a church sowing Christian teaching, love and discipline on the next generation have? That community would just transform the whole town. What about a church who sowed all these things in the power of the Spirit? What would they reap in 300 years? Well, they just might take over a huge chunk of the nation. Why are our gardens so destroyed when we have the Holy Spirit. There are so many blessings to harvest when we sow to the Spirit. There are so many things that we can do to sow spiritual health in our lives by repenting and forsaking our sins and sowing truth and obedience and living in the power that the Holy Spirit provides. And you might say to me, Cody, this sounds great, but it sounds an awful lot like the prosperity gospel. 
the health, wealth, name and climate, prosperity, gospel. And you know, if you listen to any of my sermons, I do not believe that at all. But following Jesus really does bring a lot of suffering on our lives. And it may not mean that our lives always look ordered or they always look flourishing. And I would say amen to that. Yes, that is true. But the difference is this. Imagine two gardens. You've been imagining it this whole time. One of them full of healthy plants, fruit trees, vegetables, the other is full of weeds, pests, and thistles. What happens when the sun beats down on them? And what happens when the storm comes? And what happens when hail comes down? Both of them get damaged, don't they? They both get hurt. They both suffer. It's a bad time for the garden. But when suffering comes to a fleshly person, it hardens them in their rebellion and their sin. And it causes them to hate and curse God. What about the good garden? The storms come, it's beaten down, it's destroyed it. Comes back stronger. We know it produces character, perseverance. It will receive greater joy and greater peace. The garden will grow closer to God while the other grows further away. The plants that were damaged now grow more luscious and they grow more vibrant. This isn't the prosperity gospel. This is the true gospel. This is the message of Christ who has sowed into you eternal life. And he will have his fruit. This is the message that will get you through every storm. This is a message that will cause you to endure the sun's heat. This will protect you from the hail and thunder. And guess what? You can actually accomplish it. It's not idealism. This isn't some pie in the sky thing. I'm not telling you all your problems will be solved. And you're thinking, oh, Cody doesn't know what he's talking about. Is this the word of God or is it not? We can be cynical, we can be pessimistic, but that doesn't change the fact that there are out there obedient, healthy Christian communities who have sowed and have reaped a considerable amount of good. We all want it. We all want that community. We all talk about community. We all want it, but no one of us want to actually go out in autumn and plow the field. None of us want to do the hard work. And in the grace and mercy of God, we can receive in our community this little microcosm of the fellowship that we will one day have in heaven. So Christian, here's my charge. Will you resolve today to be different? After learning all this stuff that's rather basic, did a light bulb go on in your head and you go, I kind of get it now. I made a lot of mistakes and I sowed a lot of bad things. But it ends today. Will you resolve today to examine your life and see what you were sowing and what you were reaping? And if you are reaping things that are concerning, go and seek help. Talk to your godly friends. Speak to your pastors. Speak to your spouse. And try to tackle the problem in a biblical way by sowing to the spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you have sowed into us the seed of eternal life. And Lord, we are so thankful that you came into our garden and saw it broken down and dejected and destroyed and you tore up a bunch of weeds and you planted in the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, through the Spirit's power, we can grow a garden that is beautiful. That in our lives, we can 
have that little foretaste of the garden that is to come. The garden we all lost so long ago in the fall, but restored to us by your son Jesus. Lord, we repent of the times that we have sowed evil in our lives and we have reaped corruption. When we sowed to our flesh and we deceived ourselves and we lied to ourselves and we thought we knew better than you. Our Father, help us to see where we are still doing that today and cause us to repent of it, to turn to you and receive healing and to sow to the Spirit. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who may need to talk to someone. I pray, Lord, that they would have the courage to do so, that they would not sit on it, that they would not walk away as a hearer, but they would walk away here today as a doer. And we love you, Lord, for all that you've done, and I pray you would do this work by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.